A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Amazon.com is not a market. It is replacing markets. It is an algorithm which isolates every seller and every buyer and connects them only in a manner that maximizes a rent, which is the result not of owning some asset, but of having spent a lot of money on R&D and on new technologies in order to bypass the markets. That has never happened before. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, they are the ultimate when it comes to rentiers, the big online players, particularly Amazon, who are sucking money from those who use them and now so dominant that most of us have little choice but to use them. But we've seen what they're doing to competition, to the high street, to global economies, for which we see very little tax from them, if any, from these global giants. Yanis Varoufakis calls it techno-feudalism. He's got a new book out on that very subject and he joins us this week to talk more about the concept and what we should do about it. It. And Steve is here as well, of course, so welcome along. So, Janus, the premise of your latest book is, and forgive me if I got this wrong, but basically that market economy is only really fully developed when the feudal lords saw their workers or the serfs going out to, to work on the fields rather than just working for them directly. And then, of course, they eventually got employed in factories as well. And, you know, through this, they were able to buy their own houses, to make their own way, make their own choices. And that's capitalism. That was the uh, that was the market economy. But now the big real estate is not the big old stately homes that the feudal lords had. It is uh, the big real estate is online and the feudal lords who we are all dependent on are Amazon and Google and, and Facebook. Is, is that the gist of what you're saying? I wouldn't put in those words, but, <laughs> Good. but, but you may, you may. <laughs> Allow me to put it slightly differently. Mm. Uh, the great transformation from feudalism to capitalism happened with uh, the, for, the violent eviction of the peasants during the enclosures. That the working class, people who had, had no access to means of production, to land, and therefore they had to sell their labor. Uh, the result of that great transformation was a major, major shift of power from the ones who, from those, the feudal lords who owned the land to the capitalists who owned the machines, the factories, the railway networks, the communications networks from the telegraph all the way to television and so on. Uh, and therefore wealth accumulation shifted from a rent accumulation from rent extraction, which is what the feudal lords were doing. So the peasants worked the land, uh, they didn't get a wage for it. At the end of the harvest, uh, the, the sheriff would come on behalf of the feudal lord, would take 60%, 40% of the produce, uh, and the peasants would be left with the, with the rest. Uh, so rent extraction based on land ownership. That was the name of the game under feudalism. With capitalism, you have um, the shift from uh, rent to profit. Profit made from uh, the manufacture of commodities uh, in uh, small firms, in uh, factories, and so on, 
uh, to commodities could be also services, not just uh, goods, and the wealth accumulated to those who owned the warehouses, the factories, the grids, the, the machinery of capital. Uh, the point I'm making now is this, and it is a paradoxical point, but that's how history progresses through uh, you know, delicious ironies and paradoxes. Uh, those of us who were born left-wingers, <laughs> You know, into the left, we imagined ourselves as uh, you know the warriors that would bring down capitalism, and um, who, alongside organized labor, um, repossess the means of production, uh, capital, on behalf of the many, not the few, as Jeremy Corbyn would have said. Uh, and of course, we were totally, utterly defeated. Right. And, and yet that was the great <laughs> hope for the internet, wasn't it? That this was, here was this, this space hang that on, was... Hang on, don't, don't go there, don't go there yet. Don't miss out on what... <laughs> on it's going to be a long one, folks. And then, I'll go, then I'll go to the internet. So, but the point that the book is making is that capital became so victorious, so triumphant, that it mutated into a new form, which I call cloud capital, the capital that lives inside your phone that lives, as you put it, in, in, in the digital internet, privatized internet technologies. Uh, that capital uh, was very different to everything else that we considered to be capital before. So steam engines and very modern industrial robots are produced means of production. Machines that we build to build other stuff, produce means of production. But what's inside this, is not a produced means of production. It's a produced means of behavioral modification. It's an automated machine, the purpose of which is to do that which advertisers used to do, or preachers, or orators, or philosophers, to modify our thinking, to modify our behavior. And the point I'm making is that the owners of this mutant capital, of cloud capital, became the new ruling class, uh, and they have a remarkable power to do a number of things at once that capital owners never did have the capacity. Through those machines, they can arrest our attention. They can input desires into our psyche. They can sell stuff that satiates that desire directly by bypassing markets, because Amazon.com is not a market. It is a cloud fief. It's a kind of digital fiefdom that belongs to the owner of that particular cloud capital. There are many buyers and sellers in Amazon.com, but it is not a market because the algorithm belonging to Jeff Bezos eh, matches you and me depending on the algorithm's statistical probability of maximizing Jeff Bezos's rent extraction, both from you and from the vassal capitalist that sells you anything on Amazon.com, whether it's a book or an electric bike. So to to, to cap it, to, to, to summarize it, uh, we had a great transformation in the 18th century, end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, from feudalism to capitalism, with the factor of production that produces wealth accumulation dynamics going from land to machinery. And now we have had another such great transformation from standard cap capital to cloud capital and a new ruling class. And you're right. The, privatization of the original internet commons 
is part of that story. Mm. But how did we get there? How come there's only one Amazon? How come competition didn't see that there would be five or six players in various parts of the world? How did we have the situation where there was such a land grab? I mean, I've been part of that because I worked in the internet industry at the at the access space. And the whole idea of making profit wasn't terribly important, actually. It was getting as many customers as you could so you could justify the capital investment to take part in the land grab. But how did we allow that to happen so that we've only got one Amazon, for example? Well, we don't only have one Amazon. In exactly the same way that under feudalism, there wasn't just one thief. There were many thieves. And there was rivalry between the landed gentry. Um, occasionally, there were wars between the feudal lords. Uh, one feudal lord would invade the thief of, of, of the neighboring feudal lord and take it over and cut his head off. So, right? so that would be like a, a fight between Elon Musk and uh, Zuckerberg. Yeah, and Zuckerberg. Yeah. Exactly. A cage fight. Yeah, exactly that. So it's still going on. You do have this fight. I mean, I, I, I think a better example today is between uh, Meta, Facebook, uh, with Instagram and all the other paraphernalia of Meta and TikTok. These are two thieves. But you see, to answer your question, um, well, to begin with, uh, nobody asks people before a great transformation takes place. So, you know, if, if imagine this was the 1770s and there was a referendum in Britain. Do you want capitalism or not? 99.99% would have said no, including the king and the bishops. Nobody wanted capitalism to happen. Historical transformations do not happen because people allow it to happen or, you know, let it happen or want it to happen. They happen because of technological progress, the creation of new types of technological prowess, which clash with uh, antiquated social relations between us. Uh, and this is exactly what has been happening today. But if you want me to, to give you a very brief answer as to how did that happen in the last 10, 15 years, I think two are the driving forces of this techno-feudal transformation. The first one, I think you mentioned it before, uh, the original internet was a commons. It was a capitalism free zone. So, you know, even today, we still have remnants of it, you know, HTTP and SMTP, all those technologies were provided for free and made available to the internet commons that people actually used without paying for it, without being paid for it, and so on. Then big tech from 1998 onwards starts privatizing it. So the privatization of uh, the internet commons, which was based to, to a very large extent to the privatization of your identity, because on the, on the internet, you do not own your identity. It is the bank that owns your identity. It's Google that owns you. You have to actually beg them for the right to use <laughs> your identity, which they own. That's, that's the beginning of the privatization, privatization of the internet. The second force, and that is crucial, answers the big question, who paid? How did they manage to pay for the, all this cloud capital? And the answer is, following the great financial collapse of 2008, um, in, from April 2009, the uh, central banks of the G7, primarily, uh, between then and today, or last year, they printed something like, in my estimation, $35 trillion. That has nothing to do with techno-feudalism. For them, it was simply a way of refloating, as we all know, bailing out the criminal bankers and the financial system. Uh, okay, now, the 
idea, if you ask them why are you doing that, the idea that they would give you, the central bankers and the politicians, was, well, you know, the central bank prints this money or, or creates an overdraft facility uh, for the Bank of America, for Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank and Bank of America would then lend it to business. Business will create jobs and the economy will rebound from the Great Recession. That was a, the idiotic um, explanation they, they gave. Uh, of course, in reality, uh, because they were at this very same time practicing austerity, harsh austerity for populations across Europe and the United States, uh, nobody invested that money. You know, the capitalists who actually took this money, took it back to the stock exchange, bought back their own shares, and bought all sorts of different assets from real estate to yachts and to NFTs and Bitcoin and all kinds of idiotic things. Um, uh, and we had the rally of everything, the everything rally. The only capitalists who took a substantial chunk of those $35 trillion and invested it were the Zuckerbergs and the jobs and so on, and they invested it in cloud capital. So um, in, in, in my estimation, nine out of every $10 that was invested in Facebook by Zuckerberg or by anybody working with Zuckerberg came from central bank money. So these two, the privatization of the internet commons and the quantitative easing, the, the money printing by the G7 banks is behind this surreptitious, unforeseen rise of a kind of capital, cloud capital, which at least that's what my book claims, has appended capitalism and has created something much, much worse, which I call techno-feudalism. Right. So nice. So, I mean, Stephen, we've spoken about this, haven't we, on the, the podcast lots of times about how the impact of, uh, of QE has been to elevate asset prices uh, and of course you know if you are reinvesting if you're one of those tech companies and your share price goes up then it's easier for you to raise future capital and that's what they've been doing and uh, this i mean the whole qe the, the the premise of qe if you read bernanke which i have unfortunately done a large amount of uh, he believed this money multiplier model that uh, if you give the banks the money like to give them 10 billion, they will create 100 billion through the money multiplier process, and that'll boost the economy. Uh, the Bank of England came out in 2014 and said that model is a myth. Uh, I've known it's a myth for decades, so has Giannis, because we come from an unorthodox side of economics, which understands the banks create money when they create loans. I'm sorry, Steve, I'm an, orth I'm an orthodox economist, because you know what orthodox means in Greece? In Greek? Yeah. Orthodox means you have the correct faith, the correct knowledge. I said, so we are orthodox. Uh, I am not heterodox. <laughs> I'm simply denying. The we have the correct faith. Okay. Call themselves okay. 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 Yeah. Well, in fact, we we are <laughs> we are the fighters of a failed paradigm. This is the fundamental thing. We we know the paradigm is rotten. We know it doesn't. That's my last book and the one before are largely on those topics. So, if there was a genuine scientific progress, neoclassical economics would be sitting next to phlogiston and epicycles as a, as a failed false paradigm. We're stuck with its preservation because. You know what the power structure is like in universities. Uh, economic theory hangs on despite being false, despite giving wrong predictions all the time. So that's why we're non-orthodox in the sense the orthodoxy is a failed priesthood which refuses to leave the temple. That's that's the problem we have. But um, I, I think if I, if I want to paraphrase what you the way you spoke about techno-feudalism, if you look at the the classical school, and this is Michael Hudson's orientation to a great degree, he said the purpose of uh, of classical economics was intentional to eliminate rentier income. He said that you had the, the of course the feudal system was based on rentier income. Along comes capitalism, and and the the absolutely positive thing about capitalism is the pr productive capacity, the increase in innovation, 
et cetera, et cetera. And that's sort of earned income, whether you're worker or capitalist in that sense. The rentiers, the feudal landlords, and in Ricardo's opinion, if money goes to them, less gets invested, and the eventual stationary state is we get there faster because we don't invest enough. So the classical school is trying to get rid of rentiers. And what's happened with the neoclassical economics is they can't tell the difference. And they've actually encouraged and accidentally, as you say, with QE, uh, funded a growth of a new uh, rentier class. And in effect, it's no longer a two-class system if it ever was, capitalists and workers. It's now workers, capitalists and rentiers. And the rentiers at the top are the Microsofts and the Googles and the Facebooks and so on. But it would have happened anyway, wouldn't it? I mean, QE just expedited the whole process. Perhaps it condensed what might have happened in, in 20 years down to, to 10 years. Perhaps. What do you think, Russ? Giannis? Absolutely, absolutely. Look, um, there's so much to, to say. Uh, look, Steve King is well known for uh, uh, debunking or helping a small cabal of us debunk uh, neoclassical economics. <laughs> uh, but um, I put a lot less emphasis on economics. I think that economics is... Um, I've noticed that. That's true. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think we're that significant, Steve. Uh, it's certainly not us. Uh, that's back. explained. Like, yeah, look, they are like the uh, they are like the bishop next to the king, uh, and they simply provide legitimacy to the king. The king doesn't give a well, they're, they're, about the sermons of the yeah. bishop. So you know, I, I would it, call them you know, the the, the uh, what do you call it? the the um, the butch doctors who justify the power of the of the the chief the chief. That's, and if they say it's a wrong thing, the witch doctor will have exactly an unfortunate right. accident. But the same religion will let, let me make the point about but it's, econo it's economists who put economists who push for QE, though. It's economists no. who drove no. that speeding Bill, this up. This is really not so. This is really not right, so. Okay. You know what it was? The moment the bottom fell out of Wall Street, you know, four powerful men got together and they decided, okay, we are going to refloat them. And we're going to print as much money as is necessary to refloat our mates. Uh, it was just uh, just looking after their own little group. And then they came up with theories about quantitative easing and so on to justify that which, that which they were going to do already. They didn't take this from economists. If they took it from anybody, it was from the Bank of Japan, which had already done that in the 1990s to save the bacon of the real estate um, industry, as well as the bankers who had, uh, you know, flopped in the 1990s in Japan. Now, but let, let, let me go back to the essential point about rent and rentiers, what Steve was saying. Mm. Uh, again, it wasn't the classical economists that wanted to replace uh, rent with profit. It was capitalism that was replacing rent with profit. And the classical economists were there commentating. Um, the point I'm making about cloud capital is that it is creating a new form of rent which is nothing like any form of rent we had now. Because you see, there are people who say, especially on the left, who dislike my book and my hypothesis. They say, come on, Yanis, this is still capitalism. It's rentier capitalism. It's monopoly capitalism. What are you going on about? Okay, sure, your concept of cloud capital is interesting. You know, Google and Facebook and so on are, you know, they add new vignettes to an old story. But what is the difference between Henry Ford and... Uh, uh, Elon Musk and Zuckerberg. I mean, they they were monopolist and tier capitalists back then, and that's what they are now. And that is wrong. Because, you see, if you compare people like Edison, Ford, Westinghouse, with big tech today, okay, they have super egos, 
They are super smart, most of them are, um, huge investments into monopolizing the world. So all that is similar, but there is a prof two profound differences. The first one is that Henry Ford was investing in creating barriers to entry, in becoming a monopolist. He was bribing cities, municipalities to ban trams in order for him to sell his cars and his buses. There's no doubt. But in the end, he was producing the bloody cars and the bloody buses uh, in production facilities. Uh, and, and, and he was making profits that contained an element of rent because of the monopoly profits involved in that uh, from producing the stuff that he was selling. You know, Zuckerberg and take Jeff Bezos, they're not producing anything. They're not interested. No, we're doing anything. it for them. Absolutely. Yeah. They are in the business of, of replacing the marketplace, not taking it over. Amazon.com is not a market. It is replacing markets. It is an algorithm which isolates every seller and every buyer and connects them only in a manner that maximizes a rent, which is the result not of owning some asset, but of having spent a lot of money on R&D and on new technologies in order to bypass the markets. That has never happened before. And it and has, created, has created a monopoly, of course. No, it's not a monopoly. A monopoly is a market. Yeah. Phil, allow me to make, to, 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 to make the, 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 this comparison, this mental comparison, okay? Say, think of a bad Western movie. You walk into, you know, you ride into a town somewhere in, in the West of the United States, 19th century, right? Cowboy movie. And you find out that the town is owned by one man. That's a monopoly. Every shop, the saloon bar, the bank, the post office is owned by a bastard, right? Uh, and that's, you know, that's a monopoly. When you enter Amazon.com, it is far worse than that. If you and I were, were going to, uh, to walk into an analog version of Amazon.com, Philip, you and I, let's say we are uh, riding into Amazon.com in our imagination. And let's say you and I looked at the same shop window belonging to that one person. You would see different things to what I see. Because the, because the algorithm knows you and knows me perfectly well knows what we are prepared to buy and what we're not prepared to buy. So we are trained. So if you and I were to type in Amazon.com, you know, electric bicycle, you would get a different list of electric bicycle vendors to me. But it got into that situation, didn't it? Because we all do all our shopping or so much of our shopping on yeah, Amazon. But that's, not, that's not interesting. That's not an interesting point to make. The interesting point to make is that this town owned by Jeff Bezos, this digital town, is not a marketplace. And therefore, it's not a monopoly. Because there are many different sellers. What it is, it is a fiefdom owned by one person who matches one seller and one buyer in a manner that maximizes that owner's capacity to extract rents from both the buyer and the seller. But it got there. It, it, that it, has never happened right, before. But it, this is unique in but human history. But it got history. there from a position of power, didn't it? I mean, it, it's only by knowing, it's only it's by knowing everything power. about you and everything. The question is, where is the power coming from? The question is, where is the power coming from? In the in the Western movie, that parable, right? It comes from brute force. He's got a sheriff. He's got his henchmen. If you dare, 
if anybody if anybody dares not sell or give up his shop to this uh, overlord then of course he dies or he he's treat, he's given the the tar and feathers treatment and is gotten rid of bezos's power comes from an algorithm it comes from an algorithm that you are training to know you so that it can give you excellent advice because when amazon suggests a book to me i always want to read it when Spotify suggests music for me to listen to, it's always spot on. It knows me better than I know myself. I always like music Spotify. So we train it to train us to trust it, to train us to trust it, to train us to trust it ad infinitum, to give us advice on what to buy, which then we buy. And then simultaneously, it bypasses all markets and sells it to us directly. You see, take such and such, you know, were great advertisers. Or Don Draper in Mad Men, in, in you know the, the fictitious, fantastic advertiser in in in, in that great serial. So it was a one-way street. If Sachi and Sachi or Don Draper uh, came up with a brilliant poster or television ad, it was one way. It came from them to you. If it worked, you wanted to buy the shit that they were selling. But then you had to go to a shop to buy it. Today. This automated cloud capital machine trains you to train it, to train you, to train it, to tell you what you want and sells it to you directly as well. Anybody who's got ownership of that machine has immense power over you and over the person who sells the stuff to you. So I've got a question about how sustainable all of that is. But look, we we stick out. People are now going to, before we hear you again, uh, people are going to hear an ad which is uh, being geared very much to what they're interested in hearing about. Uh, it'll be different for everybody else. Uh, but after it, we'll be back uh, on the Debunking Economics podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So Yanis Farkas is with us today. We are talking about techno-feudalism and how the power, just before the break, we were talking about the power that you hold if you are Jeff Bezos or any of the, you know, the people who own vast bits of, uh, of online real estate that are able to influence the way we think, the way we buy, that are telling us what we want, uh, which is the advertiser's dream, has always been the advertiser's dream. We were talking about Mad Men just before the break. But how sustainable is this techno-feudalism? Because you've got very few people employing very few people 
trying to extract money from an awful lot of people. And the consequences, because of Amazon, shops are closing in cities, councils are no longer getting rent from people for the properties that are closing, so the sustainability of local councils is is in question. All around the world, this techno-feudalism is destroying basically the way we finance all parts of our lives. So just how sustainable is that? It's not sustainable, but as Keynes once put it, you know, the irrational can sustain itself for longer than I will remain alive or solvent. So the unsustainable can sustain itself for a very long time and in the meantime to wreck our societies and even our environment. Uh, Think of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union ceased to be sustainable in the late 1960s and fell in 1989. So the fact that something is unsustainable doesn't mean that it won't last for far too long. Uh, uh, but the reason why I'm saying it's not sustainable, and already, already you have put your finger on it, is because think of, you know, compare and contrast General Motors with Facebook. General Motors pays out about 85% of its revenues to wages and salaries. Facebook, less than 1%. Less than 1% of Facebook's revenues are paid even to high, the high-salaried high men and women working in Silicon Valley. So if you if you add to that the fact that between 30 and 40% of the price you pay on Amazon.com or Alibaba or any of these fiefs uh, for something that you buy, a physical good that you buy, 30 to 40% of that price goes to the cloud list, the cloud capitalist. And that is extracted from the circular flow of income. This is an additional cause of substandard low aggregate demand, as we economists call it. Extreme inequality. Which forces central banks to print even more money to give it to the same people who are failing <laughs> to boost aggregate demand for the reasons that Steve Keen has already um, outlined. So that system is completely um, unstable. And that instability- but, but how long are they going to bang their heads against the wall on that one? Because they're, because they're giving money to the people, to the, to the rich. I mean, it's it, it, just as, as Steve was saying there, it's the uh, disparity in income that's the, that's the issue. And so surely the only way governments or central banks can step in is to provide some sustainability for lower income earners to try and redress yeah. that balance, for which obviously Zuckerberg would win because there'll be more money to spend uh, on you know, the, the products that are being that advertised. That is correct. And this is, you see, why I'm um, in two minds. Not in two minds. I'll explain. There's a conundrum in my head, in my psyche, about universal basic income. Because uh, on the one hand, for the reasons that you just outlined, it is important to to demand that uh, central banks provide a basic income to the people out there uh, who are being robbed of good quality jobs or actually any job uh, that is not demeaning and humiliating and precarious. Um, If they can print money for the rich, they can, why not? print money for everyone. At the same time, the last thing I would like to see is a situation where the central bank is printing money and giving bits of it, chunks of it, to uh, the many in order to sustain the capacity of cloud capital to reproduce itself. Because you know what they do? They'd use all that time, they'd take the money, and they'd use all that time to be social influencers and to create the content, which helps these models survive. Exactly. They, They replenish and they reproduce cloud capital. This is why... I'm going to go back to my origins as a 
recalcitrant and reconstructed Marxists and say that the only solution is to take over the means of production and that includes the algorithms. Really? What? So, so the government owns Facebook? No, 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 no. If you read another now, my uh, science, political science novel, you'd see what I mean. No, I actually hate the state. Uh, no, but I would like to, to, to have corporate law, which specifies one person, one employee, one vote. Uh, imagine that. Imagine you had one share, one employee, one vote. Uh, think of shares as uh, library cards that you get when you enroll at university. You can't sell it, you can't list it, you use it to vote in elections, to use the, the, the library, to use the computer facilities of your college or university. And when you're out, you, you hand, it, hand it back. It expires. Think of that. What a revolution that would be. Init at, mm. at once, you end the labor market and the share market. So not a huge... Because, I mean, what, you, what you're talking about is it operating as a cooperative. I mean, we've got lots of businesses that operate as cooperatives. You're just saying that they should be forced to be, be behave like that. Indeed. That's exactly the idea. Think of Uber. I mean, Uber uh, is doing two things at once, being a tech thief, a cloud thief. First, it exploits workers, of course, you know, drivers, we know that. I don't need to explain that further. But also, a large chunk of the returns of Uber, rents that Uber collects, comes from your data. The fact that it knows where, when you took a car to go to, from your suburb to another suburb. What it is that you ate when you arrived at the restaurant where you arrived. What did you buy? How long did you spend walking around a certain area with shop windows. All the data Uber sells to Amazon, to various other platforms. Okay, so it extracts rent from the drivers and from the users. Okay, what is the alternative to that? It's not not to have an app. I want an app to be able to call a taxi. But Im imagine if the, the driver set a cooperative with an algorithm which was um, primed to maximize the efficiency uh, in terms of both the driver's experience of working and the public without extracting rents from both the drivers and the public, but adding to the consumer surplus, to put it in economics language, and, and the spiritual surplus of all of us. Um, imagine further, further, if um, these algorithms were locally created as part of, say, a news feed. Um, imagine your own public library having its own news feed, which uh, collates um, stories and news and communications and debates from the local area and allows you access to what is happening in your municipality, but also all over the world through a network, a cooperative network of um, such um, Cloud capital being, however, in, at the disposal of communities, as, op as opposed to the cloud list, to the to the feudal lords today. So I'm not against algorithms. Um, I, I'm not against artificial intelligence. I'm completely all for it. But the question is, who owns it? Like Zubov and others who talk about surveillance capital, capitalism. I'm not that 
worried about what you know this the, 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 the big tech brothers and sisters know about me i you know i'm i'm being surveyed by the nsa i know that anyway so i know that whatever i do if google watches it the cia watches it, the nsa watches the greeks secret service watches it's great to have them all with us today by the way welcome on board yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love the little anecdote in your book where, where you, you were talking, was it talking to Google and, and you know, Google what it thought about Alexa and Alexa said thanks from the other room? Yeah, that, 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 that was scary stuff. That is scary. That, that was, well, that when they fun. start talking to each other, but that, that that's scary stuff. But you see, I am not that worried about what they know. I'm worried about who owns them. And to what uses are they putting them? And, and how, how much further it goes, I guess, is the question as well. So, I mean, when Uber, when it started, seemed like a great idea, didn't it? Because everyone thought taxis are expensive. Uh, you could see where, the, where, where your cab driver was. It all seemed great. But obviously, it created a very quickly an unsustainable model because the first thing it did was to screw the, the, the furs that taxi drivers were getting. Uh, and that is just going to get worse, obviously, because the, if, if, if the profit motive is there, uh, the very small number of people employed in these companies are just going to try and keep on impre- increasing that profit. And if an algorithm can say, well, hey, we found new ways of screwing these wages even lower, then they will do it, obviously. Indeed. I mean, every such cloud thief, when they start, it's very hard to argue with their purpose. So I remember I, I lived in Seattle when Uber began, and it began in Seattle. And it was only, I don't know whether you know that, it was only limo service, limousines. Because there were all the limousines who were hired by you know, some rock star to take them somewhere. And then for five hours, they were sitting around doing nothing, waiting. So it, the, the original idea of Uber was to, instead of them sitting there, why can't you hire a limo to go from A to B during their downtime uh, for less than a fare of a taxi? That gives a little bit of money to the limo driver and gives you the opportunity to, to, to be driven around in a limo. For It's very hard to say, no, no, that's wrong. We shouldn't be doing that. But then look at the way that it evolved, right? Same with Airbnb, the original idea. Okay, I have a spare room. Um, somebody may use it. Uh, it's a mutually advantageous deal for me to and the person who wants to use my room to do it. But today, you have whole city centers that are being... Uh, that in the process of desertification as a result of Airbnb. And that is only because the algorithm is zoned by people whose interests are completely diagonally, diametrically opposed to the interests of the city and to the many and to the majority of the people. Well, I mean, I mean, I gave that example earlier about uh, city centres that are just being sucked of money because it's all going on to, uh, on to Amazon. Uh, and, and, and no one's got an answer to and, and, and Airbnb for sure, yeah, for for the retail sector and for for accommodation. But how do you? Uh, I mean, other than your approach, sort of like the the cooperative approach, which sounds like a great idea, but one of those things that you just know will never happen. In the short term, governments are going to struggle uh, and the situation is only going to get worse. I mean, it, the only thing you can do is with taxation, perhaps, to say, well, OK, let's try and uh, provide uh, more money to local authorities. But then local authorities will be saying, well, still don't know what to do with the money because we've still got a, a town centre which is devoid of people uh, and businesses. Uh, it's like there's no quick fix to any of this and it feels like the situation is just going to get worse and worse. But there are things you can do. Uh, look, I, I am a radical because I do believe in uh, a radical transformation of own owners, ownership rights, of property rights. 
right? But that doesn't mean that we have to wait for that to happen before we do anything. So New York City has been very good at tackling Airbnb. So you, um, you know, I lead a political party here um, in Parliament. We tabled um, piece of legislation, an amendment to an existing legislation about Airbnb. I said, okay, sixty days maximum. Um, you, you can rent out your house for sixty days maximum, not in one block. Maximum two blocks of one month each, separated by another month, um, so that you can make a bit more extra money. But you can't do what it is what they are doing now. Yeah, I mean Athens has been completely destroyed, like many of our cities, because what they're doing is they're combining the golden visa, which gives you know a Russian, a Ukrainian, a Nigerian, a Chinese person, whatever. Um, the right to come to Greece and you know buy three or four apartments, get a Schengen visa, which gives them the right to live in Paris, not in Greece, right? In, in, okay, and those apartments are turned into Airbnb, uh, and and they're effectively exported. It's a real estate that's been exported to the to the cloud, because uh, those those apartments are no longer available for the locals. To, you know, so the, the supply of apartments to the local economy has been uh, cut massively. Uh, the, the communities lose their social fabric because all you have is you know foreign tourists coming in and out, um, and increasingly they take over more and more buildings, which means that the, you know it's self-defeating for the tourists because they come and they only see each other. <laughs> they don't see lots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, even worse than that, I've been down in Cornwall and uh, you couldn't eat out at the cafes because there weren't enough staff because the staff couldn't get in because all the places have been to, taken by... They because they couldn't afford to stay there and they'll be taken by Airbnb customers. So, again, another unsustainable so model. There, there, are, there are regulations that the state and the municipality can impose. Uh, regarding taxation, look, I, I have become... Um, a rabid supporter of uh, shifting tax away from profits to revenues, especially when it comes to the digital economy. Uh, imagine if you had a 5% tax on revenue. I don't care what you tell me your profits are. Um, 5% of everything that you receive uh, goes to the state. Because we know that uh, Amazon uh, in, in 2023 had an income in the European Union, I'm telling you about the European Union because it just so happens that I have the data, of uh, 46 billion euros. They paid zero tax, precisely zero tax, because they can always disguise their profits as costs. Uh, so slap a 5% tax on them, maybe 10, on their revenues. And you know, do it for companies that have a certain amount of um, weight and breadth, um, depending on, on, on their overall revenues. You can test their revenue. You, you know what their revenues are. They cannot hide their revenues because it's all through credit cards and debit cards and so on, and charge them on that if you want to do that. But they, the next step towards my utopic, if you want, another now uh, idea of the cooperatives is to say that the, the next step is to say, okay, you want to function in my country? or the European Union, or the United States, you have to deposit 10% of your, your shares, of your shares, into a social equity fund, where dividends accumulate, from which you pay basic income. And then that 10% can become 20%. Because in any case, you know, every time you use this bloody phone, right, you're adding to the cloud capital of those cloud lists, and you're getting no dividends. You don't have any property right over the capital that you... You see, this is the very first time. Up until cloud capital 
mutated and, and evolves. Um, capital was produced by wage labor. So, you know, if you wanted to, if you were an industrialist and you wanted to order a robot, an industrial robot, to this day, you have to pick up the phone and call the company that makes industrial robots and place an order, and then they will use other industrial robots, but wage labor as well, in order to produce the industrial robot that you will take, right? So capital was produced inside workplaces with wage labor being part of the deal. With this, every time you post a review on Amazon, every time you upload a video on TikTok, you add to the capital base. Every time you tweet anything on X, you add to the capital base and you get nothing. So to the extent that cloud capital, like all capital, but especially cloud capital, is socially produced, society has the right to ownership of part, at least, of that capital. And that's not the same thing as taxation. That is not taxation. It's like, it's like saying society owns part of your dividends because society has created, directly created, manufactured part of your capital. So if you want to function in my country or in my block or in my continent, you have to, to put you know a certain percentage of your shares in public trust. So your thoughts on that, Steve? I mean, my, my only kind of concern about it would be, I mean, it sounds like a great idea, but it's a power play isn't it? And we've, we've already seen, you know, you we, need, we need power. This, 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 this. But, who, Sorry, but who's got the power? So for example, you look at the, you know, the confrontation that went on between the Australian government and Facebook, for example, I mean, Facebook or Amazon, if Amazon just said, well, okay, if that's the way where you want us to operate, we just won't operate in your country. Uh, then the people of that country would be up up in arms. So the governments are not as powerful as these players. That's the problem. Mm. Well, I think the governments are it's just not like paralyzed by thinking they're not as powerful as these players. You need a certain amount of capacity to bluff. Uh, and actually, you can carry through if you bluff if you are the government. So uh, like Nidana, she had a painful experience of that. Your own time as finance minister, that your Sitsipras, you know, let you down. I think, I think one of the most remarkable parts of your book, Adults in the Room, which is one of your great books, um, was that you, you admitted you made a mistake and the mistake you made was not to use the power you were given in one of the meetings to throw down the sort of atomic weapon of, I've forgotten what it precisely was, but it would have invalidated a huge swathe of European Union bonds. You left that decision for Sitsipras and he didn't make it. Okay? And that was him having a sort of feigned incapacity or feigned weakness. Uh, he, he didn't he didn't want to exploit his own power. He didn't realize it, didn't want to exploit it. And a lot of that happens on the government side, whereas these top capitalists are quite aware of their personal power and they're willing to play that game of bluffing until governments back down. Bill, this is why democratic politics is sine qua non, because the only way you, a government can confront those very powerful men, and they're usually men, uh, uh, is if you have a political movement behind you egging you on and supporting you. That's why democracy is um, uh, irreplaceable. Yeah, like also, also let's talk about part of your democracy. Your, your democracy, and I, was a play, I, I forgot where I saw this in, um, and I think it was in Another Now you mentioned this. The Athenian democracy wasn't what we call a democracy. It was random selection. It was sortition. But that's what democracy was for them. Exactly, see, and it, it should be for us. We've made the mistake of making it, we elect, we, we choose the narcissist we want to be in power. Yeah, the point that Steve is making is that in ancient Athens, and that's, that's very um, uh, intriguing to uh, modern society, uh, there were two 
major political forces, the Democrats and the aristocrats. The aristocrats hated democracy. They wanted, of course, all the power to make decisions on their own, as aristocrats always want. Uh, and the Democrats wanted the demos, the many, to rule. But because they wanted the many to rule, they were against elections. The Democrats were against. The aristocrats wanted elections because they knew they could control them. They knew they could hire the best orators, the best speakers, the best advertisers, and so on, even back in ancient Athens. So the Democrats, that's what Steve is saying, um, uh, were in favor of uh, the jury system. The jury system comes from ancient Athens, where even the judges were selected by lot, and they rotated every six months. Uh, but of course, you know, so, you know, in our political party here in Greece and in Europe, um, DiEM25, we try to practice that. Half of our central committee, you know, uh, various uh, uh, coordinating groups and so on, um, they are drawn um, through sortition, randomly, a random selection, half of them. And the other half are elected because you need a combination. So to take that point, if if uh, if, if a government or g- several governments around the world started to say, well, first of all, uh, all of you online players, we want you to pay tax based on your revenue within that country. Then you, we also want you to issue proportional shares and pay dividends. Uh, and that's what we're going to do. Uh, each of those players is there going to launch a, a concerted online campaign to try and say this is a bad idea. So then it becomes who's got the most influence in society? You know, is it the online players or is it the government? Thirty-five countries, thirty-five countries are already are, have already introduced what they call the digital tax uh, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in Turkey. They have a four percent tax, which is not not to be scoffed at. They have introduced it. And you know Amazon and so on, you know they, they grin and bear it. They take it. I can be forced. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, so you see, it's it's only the the sub- supposedly democratic, uh, developed global North countries that are completely in the pockets of those cloud capital owners, cloudless as I as I call them. So you know, if they can do it, and if Indonesia can do it, you know, Germany can do it. But they will not do it unless the population forces them, to, unless politicians suffer a cost for not doing it. So then you, so you get that money. This is a question for Steve. You get that money. What do you, what do you do with it then? Because uh, do we think that the cloud lists will, you know, uh, basically be the revenue generators for the world? And there will be. I mean, we've talked about this for a long time. Well, a hundred years, haven't we? That there's not going to be uh, enough work to to employ everybody. Or will there still be jobs around? Or does this money have to go in and, and pay some sort of benefit? Well, to a large to part of that money is, is not to not to have the money, but to stop it accumulating in the hands of the uber wealthy. That's the major function of the taxation. Because if you understand the way in which money is created, both by private banks and by the government, uh, it's it's not that they need to get the money from the working or the people or the capitalists. It's the money accumulates in ultra rich hands and gives them inordinate power. And we we used to use income tax to try to get that money back. And you had those enormous marginal tax rates, particularly in in pre um, pre Tory England. If you look back on the the post Second World War period, where the marginal tax rate was up to the 90 percent, and that actually encouraged a lot of the I think the neoliberal shift we saw afterwards. Uh, but we're, what it was really doing is stopping the money accumulating too much, but using income to do it. Now, this is using, trying to use taxation to stop the money accumulating, and, which was because of rent, not because of income. 
And that that is what you'd be capturing by putting taxes on the Amazons and the Ubers and so on at a national level. Um, and so that money then comes back and it's in, but reducing the inequality more proportionally ends up in the people who's the working class, the middle class who can spend. And it gives you the potential to have a polis based on your locality. Uh, whereas what we get out of the, the cloud capitalists is a polis based on looking at your phone and being in a, in a virtual world. And maybe uh, the final point, uh, Yannis, it's been great having you on today. I mean, maybe people like Jeff Bezos would appreciate this approach because that whole thing about this is the long-term sustainability. At some point, he's going to be uh, selling to advertisers who aren't selling very much because there's just not enough money swilling around. I think that is, a, to a large extent, the reason why you have all these millionaires, billionaires in the world saying, tax us, tax us, please tax us a little bit more because they understand they're smart people. They understand that uh, they are essentially sowing the branch of the tree on which they are sitting. But they face a collective action problem too, because while every one of them understands that it is important to reduce inequality, none of them individually wants to do it. They prefer everybody else to be taxed except themselves. So they fall themselves into a prisoner's dilemma uh, in the same way that workers do when they fail to organize. Um, so that's why democracy is cannot be um, it, it cannot be uh, second-guessed or replaced by smart-minded people getting together and doing that which is in their interest as well, because they will never do it, uh, even if they understand the importance of reducing inequality. Each one of them is going to do whatever it takes to maximize inequality in the final analysis. It, it feels like it's a philosophical discussion, but it's not really, is it? Because it's reality and it's reaching ahead pretty quickly. So uh, so your book is very timely uh, from that point of view. And uh, look, Giannis, it's been great having you on the podcast. Hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. Well, it's been great being had on the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me and having me. And it was good to see you, Phil, and to see you again, Steve. Steve and I go... We go back 30 back, years. Way, it's over 30 years since we first met. And I still remember you walking into the, I think it was around 428, 428 at Sydney University's Meriwether building. And uh, you sat down and started yeah. to pontificate in your magnificent Shakespearean uh, diction. And I then, of course, later realized, well, that's how you learned English. <laughs> that's correct. And you left, and you <laughs> left, you left Australia because you got a bit sick of Australian politics. I, I read that anyway. Well, you see, no, look, I'm a, I'm a perpetual political refugee. Uh, so I left England in 1988 because I, I had just spent 10 years under Thatcher and I was up to there. Um, so when, when she won her third straight general election victory in 1987, I started feeling you know, fidgety and ready to leave. And then I had a, an offer from Sydney University. I thought, okay, I'll go. And it was brilliant because Thatcherism had not arrived in Australia in 1988. It was still a magnificent period. Uh, it was the best period that Australia has ever had. Uh, and then a few years later, in the 1990s, um, a third-rate version of Thatcher called John Howard, a pipsqueak, horrible man, uh, was elected. Uh, at the same time, neoliberalism was coming inside the universities. So the, exactly the same thing I had escaped from university life in England had already infected the University of Sydney and other universities. Um, Howard was in, in government. He was far worse than Thatcher because Thatcher at least was smart. John Howard was a combination of evil and stupid, which is the worst combination ever. So I started getting fidgety again, and then I got an offer from Athens University. So I came here. It was brilliant here in Greece because, again, Thatcherism had not come. 
Um, so I had some, a few brilliant years. And then the whole thing came crashing down with the, the bankruptcy, which brought in the worst kind of Thatcherism through the Troika. And then I got seriously involved in fighting them. So, and then, you know, then I became finance minister of the most bankrupt country in Europe um, uh, with uh, the support of the most bankrupt political party in, in, in Greece, my own party. And then I created... It's it's, you know, it's 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 a constant escape. The neocons—they're following you around the world. Hey, on uh, Australian politics, of course, got uh, from second rate. It got third rate because we then went on and had Scott Morrison. But the good news is that Scott Morrison yes. has announced he's resigning from politics for good. So there's you know there's uh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel uh, for all of us. Uh, anyway, good to talk. We'll we'll get, we'll get you on again soon whenever you've got some time. Good to talk, Yanis. Absolutely. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you, mate, for coming on the Debunking Economics Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.